are in the season of Advent. That's been said many times this morning, but it's in my notes, and so I follow the notes. Advent is the first season of the Christian year, so Happy New Year. It's a season in which, as we approach the shortest day of our year this coming week, the day with the least amount of light, we turn inward to explore the darkness within ourselves while we also strain our eyes to catch glimpses of light. Those glimpses are the themes of each Sunday in Advent. The themes of the first two Sundays were hope and peace, and this week the theme is joy. As we do the difficult work of Advent, of preparing for the coming of Jesus into our hearts, minds, lives, and for God's sake, our social structures, these themes keep us centered and grounded. Our text this morning is Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. Let me read it for you, please. The prophet wrote, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, Be strong, do not fear. Here is your God who will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense, and come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless will sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, and the thirsty ground will become springs of water. The haunt of jackals will become a swamp. The grass will become reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, and it will be called the Holy Way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, can go astray on this highway. No lion will be there, nor will any ravenous beast come up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return out of this desert, and they will come back to Zion singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They will obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. We hear the voice of God in the reading of these sacred words. Thanks be to God. Here we have some of the most beautiful words in our scriptures. They are so divine that Jesus himself would later quote these words when he's answering John the Baptist as to whether or not Jesus was legit. John sends a messenger, hey Jesus, are you the real deal? And Jesus quotes this in his message back to John. Go tell John, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the mute are speaking. These are power, powerful words. They're even more powerful when, when we consider the specific audience to whom they are written. That audience was the people of God who were conquered and led away to Babylon as captives in the 6th century BCE. It's there that they are trying to scrape out a life. Far from their homes, far from their sacred places, 
far from their ability to determine the shape of their own lives. Everything they needed to live and move through life with security and meaning was taken from them. This is an attempted genocide. And into that context, the prophet dares to speak these words. He tells a story about a future joy. It's a story against the data, a story contrary to the prevailing narrative. He describes how the desert will become alive with abundance and beauty, how the inhabitable will become a home. And then he shifts from the environment to the person with the command, breaking down the fourth wall. And he says, strengthen the weak hands, the feeble knees, and the fearful hearts. Remind them about God. And when you do, he says, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the mute will speak, and the land itself will come back to life. And then he tells about a highway, the way of holiness, a sacred path that will lead them out of captivity and back to their homes where they can live freely, their days and their nights filled with joy. As I turn these words and images over and over in my mind this week, I thought about a few things in particular. First, I thought about genocide, obviously. Because when you're trying to write a sermon for Joy Sunday, this is where your mind naturally goes, right? Genocide. No, it's rather inconvenient, actually, but that's what was going on in here. If you were wondering, if you saw me staring off into space throughout the week, the Babylonians conquered a people to take their land and resources from them, and those that survived were shipped somewhere else to mix them in with other conquered people so they would lose their collective personhood genocide. Now, as if that wasn't troubling enough, I was further troubled by this text in particular because it promises that God will undo this. Now, to be fair, it actually happened that some of those people do return to their land later in the 6th century BCE, and they reestablish their society and their cultural identity. This actually happens. And then Rome destroys them again late in the first century, but they people and they're still here, formally reestablished as an independent nation last century. It's really incredible. This attempted genocide overturned. But the troubling part is that not all genocides are only attempted. Some are successful, if I can use that word, and some are still ongoing. I think of the American Indians here. I think of the Rohingya in Myanmar. I think of the Uyghurs in China. I think of our brothers and sisters south of us in Central America being suffocated by physical and economic violence. My fear is that we can read a text like this and we can become triumphalistic and fatalistic about God undoing evil and suffering when that's just not the lived reality for many people. I'm just being honest for a minute here. But then I noticed, I noticed in the text that it's not solely up to God to bring this reversal about. The prophet says to the hearer and to the reader, you, yes, you, wherever you find weak hands and feeble knees and fearful hearts, you heal them and remind them about the covenantal God who never abandons them, no exceptions. 
Now, the prophet doesn't tell us how to do this work alongside God. That's on us. He just says, do it. And then watch what happens next. People will be healed. Land will be healed. Captives get to go home to where they are free to follow and worship God as they are led to do so. It becomes a resurrection story, and sprinkled throughout it is joy. Mysterious, surprising, unexpected. Now, I know I'm supposed to get up here on Joy Sunday of Advent and say, be joyful, dang it, and then tell you with very spiritual reasons why it's your obligation to be joyful. But as I sat with this text throughout the week and I thought about how joy comes when the captives are given a vision of how reality could be different, And then joy comes as their bodies and their minds and their lives and their communities are stitched back together. And then joy comes again as they journey out of captivity and toward home. Joy springs up like an oasis in the desert throughout a process. So it would actually be inappropriate for me to simply tell you, be joyful without sharing a vision for a different reality. And talking about a process of resurrection during which we can be surprised by and encountered by joy. Being as how it's Advent, a season of intentional discipline and growth and introspection, and how our theme is home, let's focus there for a few minutes. Home is something sacred for many of us, which is why we go home on holidays or holy days. And why when we don't have healthy homes, we often see them as something desecrated or desacredized. Our homes are the places that we go to for rest and where we first live out our dreams and our deepest values. They're the places from which we guarantee the future of our species. We don't raise kids in factories or laboratories. It happens in our homes. The idea of home is so important to me that When I got the chance to spend this fall semester writing a paper on any social justice topic I wanted, I chose to focus on the subprime mortgage crisis and how it ripped apart the notions of home for so many people. Primarily, people of color who were sold subprime mortgages even when they qualified for prime mortgages. The very being of home as a safe refuge from the world was ripped apart for them. We could say the ontology of home, the core essence of what home is, disintegrated around them. The marginalized and the vulnerable have always been crushed and ground up to make a tasty broth for the powerful. And it was especially true during this reverse redlining that took place during this time. The 2000s housing bubble and subprime mortgage crisis, you didn't expect this in an Advent sermon, did you? Yes, David Shea. The 2000s housing bubble and subprime mortgage crisis was one more example of the hyper-financialization of every part of our lives, a trend now four decades in the making. And it now includes our homes and everything associated with them. Our homes used to be one of the primary ways that we built intergenerational wealth. However, over the past few decades, the single-family residence, our homes, have become an entirely new asset class for the wealthy. 
all facets of society, including our homes, have been monetized and securitized for the benefit of a smaller and smaller handful of people, and the bulk 90% are increasingly living very precarious financial lives. Here's where I make a connection to our text, so wake, wake up, wake up. Instead of being conquered and led away by Babylon like the kingdom of Judah was, we are being conquered by debt and consumerism and taken away to live in deserts of debt and financial scarcity far away from where we are free to follow God as we are led. Does this resonate with anyone out here? Nationally, 40% of us use a credit card to pay a $400 emergency bill. And the average one among us saves anywhere from negative 5% up to 0% of your income. Economic policies have been shaped to favor capital over labor and to help the top 10% and especially the top 1% of wealth holders increase their wealth. But for the rest of us, the wolf is always at the door and it weighs on us and our children. Researchers are exploring how this affects us and they refer to it as the biological embedding of financial stress. In other words, the effects of debt and financial insecurity get stored in our children's bodies and it negatively impacts our health, shortening lifespans, among other things. Can you see the creeping desertification, no, desertification of our financial lives? Desertification would be awesome. I'm talking about desertification. <laughs> there are myriad and complex reasons for this. For decades, we've been dismantling social safety nets as a society. Earlier, the Trump administration changed the rules for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, or what we call food stamps, and it's estimated this will remove an additional 700,000 people from its roles. In Austin, there's only one shelter bed for every two and a half to three people who need one on any given night. At the same time, the cost of the important services and assets that we need most have inflated tremendously. Housing, education, and healthcare, for example, have skyrocketed. So the average American now dies $62,000 in debt. Trickle-down economics are supposed to trickle down, but instead it often gets captured by those at the top, such as with the surge of stock buybacks by corporations over the past few years, partially due to the 2017 tax cuts. What I'm describing here is how in a desert, the, wa the water often evaporates before it even hits the ground. And that is the economic society in which we're living right now. Bringing it closer in from environment to person, our hearts and our minds are often co-opted by propaganda. We are told that we need specific status symbols or consumer items or a specific look for us to be fulfilled and the world to be right. We can blame greed and materialism for this, but I think it's that we are often afraid or we're socialized to be afraid. Every commercial rings Pavlov's bell, exciting the fear center of our brains, triggering fears of missing out or fears of being seen as poor or uncivilized or weird or irrelevant. These are just a few of the macro level barren desert problems and aggressions that you and I can't fix any more than those captives in Babylon could change their environment. 
certain we can't fix them, certainly not on our own or not with simplistic solutions and not at a macro scale. Whatever interventions or changes you and I want to implement, they need to start first in our own lives, in our own homes, and maybe even in something larger like our church community here. What would it look like to see the desert blossom? to see bodies, hearts, and minds resurrected, to see weak hands, feeble knees, and fearful hearts healed. And what is that highway that will lead us home to follow God freely? This is something that Christians have thought about for two millennia now, and over time we've developed inner and outer disciplines and practices for this kind of work. And this week I thought a lot about what's called one of the outer disciplines, or the practice of Christian simplicity. The tradition of Christian simplicity goes back to Jesus being born among animals in a barn. It goes back to John the Baptist telling his followers that if they have extra shirts, give them away. If you have extra food, share it. If your job requires you to collect money from people, just collect the bare minimum. It goes back to the Apostle Paul, who also in Philippians 4, by the way, said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through Jesus who gives me strength. It goes back to Jesus telling the rich young hedge fund manager to leave captivity and journey with him toward freedom. To be clear, there are times for extravagance. Don't worry. But the examples of extravagance that I see in the New Testament are reserved for showing hospitality, honoring someone, and celebrating something momentous. I could be wrong, but that's what I saw this week as I looked into it. Something momentous like the prodigal son returning or like the sex worker anointing Jesus' feet because he affirmed her humanity. Extravagance has its place in the economy of God. Let's practice some non-dualism here. But still, throughout the ages, simplicity has been accepted by many as one of the core spiritual disciplines of the Christian life because it liberates us from oppressive domination systems in so many ways. And as we are liberated, as we take that journey out of captivity, joy springs up all around us in unexpected places. So let me just be practical for a minute and talk about that. What might this look like in real life? As the Wendell Berry quote in your guide this morning says, whatever is foreseen in joy must be lived out from day to day. We are currently in the frenzy of gift buying for Christmas. I am. Maybe you're done shopping. What if you just, you know, didn't? Or you make it your goal to make or re-gift half of your gifts this year. I don't know. Something like that. I know. That might make you look cheap or you're scared or whatever but that's true but like Fran says we can't do your spiritual work for you and that's a spiritual issue during this winter season we can go through our closets and drawers and donate extra jackets and clothing notice I didn't say unwanted jackets but extra jackets and clothing to someone in our community or the Round Rock Area Serving Center before buying something we can stop and ask ourselves what need is this fulfilling for me Is it a physical need or a psychological need, a need to be seen a certain way? Is it something your true, 
already loved, already accepted self needs, or is it something that your false self needs? Ask yourself, will this lead me into or out of captivity? Or looking at the second quote in your guide this morning, also from Wendell Berry, ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? We've been labeled in acquisitive society, which means we are more concerned with acquiring goods than we are with the common good. One way to challenge this is to ask how little we can live with, how few shirts, pants, shoes, kitchen utensils, toys, etc. can I live with. I've heard Lyle share an an idea multiple times now that's really stuck with me. He said... He said, not wanting something is as good as having it. Not wanting something is as good as having it. This is similar to the Buddhist concept that all suffering is caused by wanting something or wanting to avoid something. And it's been helping me navigate out of the desert. You and I can't wave a magic wand and change the macro level desertification of society. But we can practice simplicity of home and heart and mind and trust that these changes will trickle up into the desert around us. Imagine how you could be freer to love your neighbor as yourself or to live in solidarity with our friends in El Paso and Juarez, for example. As we, the pastors, are planning out next year's calendar, uh, we've been thinking about how to use perhaps a retreat or a series of small groups to help us learn about, brainstorm, and support one another in practicing Christian simplicity for the good of ourselves and our neighbors and our earth. But why wait until then? You can help these, uh, you can help them trickle up into the peace community now. What if there was something you had that another person in our community needed to borrow? or something that you no longer used, but another needed. We already do some of this. I've seen our moms pass around children's clothes to one another. I've seen us bring tools and paintbrushes and help transform a house into a home. I'm looking at you right now, Aaron, and others. There are times that I'm sure I've seen the desert bloom and sing because of what we're doing here at Peace. But I think there's more we can do. Is there a skill that you have that you need to lend out to someone else rather than to hoard? Anna Swisher is a living saint in this regard for our mothers having breastfeeding challenges. How can our medical professionals help us care for the bodies in this community? How can our therapists and counselors help care for the minds and souls here? How can we care for one another's financial lives? For example, what if instead of buying a car that you couldn't afford, You drove an older car because you knew that this community would help you repair it when it broke. Doesn't all this sound like water breaking forth in the wilderness and streams flowing in a desert? We are hoping that our monthly meals can be an example of a simple gathering wherein we experience the joy of just eating together and stitching our lives together and feeding whoever comes. And I know that at least at one of those meals, I will hear someone say, wow, it's really nice for someone like me to be welcomed in a church of all places. But what I'll actually be hearing them say or actually be hearing is the tongue of the speechless singing 
for joy. This past week, Naomi posed a wonderful question on Facebook. She said, what if we reached out and we asked for help more from one another? One of the comments was that it's hard to ask for help. And what they meant was it's not normal. We're afraid to be seen as though something is lacking or missing with us. Uh, yeah, of course there is. You're a human, and like the rest of us humans, you have to live within the sacred bounds of finitude. We all experience weak hands and feeble knees and fearful hearts, but we live in a society that is ever trying to send us as captives to the psychological, financial, and relational desert. But let me tell you about a community whose God makes room for you, no exceptions, who calls us all out of our captivity and into freedom, who teaches us how to walk again, to see again, to hear again, to speak again. Each other, this God with a life of holy simplicity, simplicity of possessions, simplicity of speech, simplicity in our homes, simplicity when we're out of our homes. Let us reveal this God to each other where resources are freed up to do the work of healing alongside God. Just like the people in our text, we can't destroy Babylon, but we can walk out of it, singing together with the landscape around us coming to life. Now there is a vision of joy that I pray truly with all that I am, we can be surprised by and live toward together. Amen.